Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is John Hunter. John is an acclaimed teacher and educational consultant, and for over three decades, he has led his young students through the World Peace Game. It's a hands-on simulation of the complex issues facing humanity and global leaders, and success is defined as world peace and increased prosperity for all nations. It came to national and international prominence, first as a documentary film, and now as a book called World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. John Hunter has shared the lessons of the World Peace Game at venues as varied as the TED Conference, the Aspen Institute's Ideas Festival, the United Nations, the Pentagon, Harvard University's Law School and Graduate School of Education, and Georgetown University. We're so pleased and honored to have him with us as a guest today. Welcome, John. Oh, it's a real thrill and pleasure, Miriam, to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's our delight, and I so enjoyed reading your book. John, (laughs) tell us how your upbringing and your personal spiritual development informed your attitudes towards peace and conflict. Uh, well, you know, it, it, of course, begins with the family, with my mother and father. We're very close-knit, very quiet, uh, peaceful sort of family, living in, in very uh, tumultuous times, actually. We were in the segregated South, an African-American family. But my family's approach, uh, we call it now the shadow school, which was to work against difficulties in a very quiet, almost invisible kind of way. And this family quietude really sort of permeated uh, everything I did and the attitudes I developed later. And it really tied into, you know, the, the quietest or the more com- contemplative uh, aspects that I discovered in traveling abroad in, in China, Japan, and India. So that, that kind of overall um, very deep uh, allowing space, that empty space that didn't really have content or agenda so much, was really a kind of a preset or a template for me to even begin thinking about teaching. So the family led, led me abroad, and uh, being led abroad, I ended up coming back to my family ways in a way. Mm-hmm. Now, you created the game some 35 years ago in, in a kind of flash of insight. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your vision and how you recognized its importance at the time. Right. That that uh, very open space, it continued. When I actually got my first teaching assignment, I, I was uh, excited, idealistic. I was a young man, 1977, 78, and I wanted to do the best I could, and I wanted to bring the best I could possibly manage in teaching to my classroom. And I asked my uh, supervisor when I was hired, what should I do? How should I proceed to, to do teaching right and she astounded me. She really upset my entire apple cart, so to speak. She simply asked me, what did I want to do? And uh, providing that clear, empty space, that open area to begin thinking about how I might see things or how I might uncover what was there rather than being handed a mandate or a, a manual was really uh, liberating as much as it was upsetting. And so from that, I developed the first World Peace Game, which really just came out of uh, following my my mentor's advice to teach to the students' passion, to find out what they loved and what they cared about. And in 1978, we didn't have any social media. We only had board games for teenagers. <laughs> so 
So I used that as an impetus to start board games and what I was required to teach. At that time, it was African studies. I sort of did a mashup and put the two together and then brought in problem solving, which had just sort of come into vogue in 1978. And uh, with that beginning, uh, there was a four-foot-by-five-foot plywood board on the floor with hundreds of uh, toy store and uh, hobby shop uh, toys and uh, little figurines. And then a few years later, I had that vision you talked about where just one, one night, late one night, I sat bolt upright in bed and I had the entire vision of a three-dimensional plexiglass structure with thousands of moving pieces and 50 or more interlocking global problems all working as one gigantic equation together. And I quickly struggled to get it all written down at about 2 or 3 a.m. And that really became the modern world peace game, which has since been tweaked by my students even further. Describe it a little further, because this plexiglass structure has, Mm. has undersea, earth, you know, you, you describe it for us. Sure. Um, it, it's a, a four-foot by four-foot by four-foot <laughs> plexiglass tower. It's essentially four four-by-four sheets of quarter-inch plexiglass horizontally stacked or arranged one above the other from the floor up to about uh, four and a half feet. It towers over most of my nine-year-olds who play. I played from uh, fourth grade all the way up to adults now in high schools where the game started. But this structure stands in the middle of my classroom. The undersea level is represented by the, the first pane of glass uh, down at their shoelaces, really. And you have undersea mining, submarines, sunken civilizations, uh, reefs, uh, undersea oil drilling operations. Then there's a ground and sea level just about at their knees. And that's covered with, of course, cities, towns, factories, mountains, uh, armies, and navies, too. We move up to the aircraft level, which is above that, and that, of course, is a four-by-four sheet of plexiglass, and that's about at their eye level. And here we have uh, giant puffs of cotton for clouds that are moved around randomly by the weather goddess, one character in our game who handles the random events, the random stock market, and random weather. And above that, we have an outer space level with uh, asteroids, asteroid mining, space stations, satellites, and even a black hole. <laughs> the kids love that part particularly. And the, te- the uh, game is played by having four groups of students divided into four country teams or cabinets, we call them. I choose the leadership. I choose the prime minister, who then in turn uh, chooses their, their cabinet, secretary of state, minister of defense, and a CFO or chief financial officer, we have a UN arms dealers and a World Bank body, and also that weather goddess I mentioned. And finally, we have a saboteur. <clears throat> and a saboteur is a student who's usually always in the office in trouble, but <clears throat> we found a way to sort of uh, engage that skill set in a secret way to help us actually improve the game. And that all works together to make this giant eight to ten week, uh, this eight to ten week routine where the students actually do seem to solve the world's problems and save the world time and time again. It's, it's just wonderful <laughs> to, for thinking that way. to follow them. It, it's really amazing. Um, when you, developed this game it was 35 years ago how have you seen it evolve i mean with with technology with the internet and so on ah well you know that's a really interesting question Marion, because i was adamantly against any technology being involved with the game at all from the very beginning i thought that the visceral 
in your face, in the room, interpersonal relationship where you can almost smell the pheromones was critical <laughs> to, the, to the real deep learning experience. And I've since softened in that attitude. Now we're having a, a professor from MIT and some large gaming companies and uh, Silicon Valley design firms looking into how they might augment the game tech, with technology, mm-hmm. not replacing it. I'm, I'm adamant about the physical structure and the interpersonal relationships being the core of it and remaining the core. But I, I'm open to the possibility of sharing it uh, in a wider way than I could simply just by teaching you know, one class at a time. So that whole approach of, of having them in the room, dealing with it together, has been the core of everything. And we have essentially no technology in the game whatsoever. The, the, uh, my friends say it's, it's not low-tech, John, it's no-tech. There's nothing <laughs> there. You use a pointer, a metal pointer or a wand to indicate things on the board. That's about the highest level of technology that we have. And uh, it seems to be... Uh, beyond technology in a way, and we understand that putting it online with strangers playing would defeat the purpose. It would not be as deep and as rich of a learning experience, removing that central ingredient of relationships. And that, that ingredient relationships underpins everything I do in teaching. It's really the core of, of how I think teaching is, is carried out in the best way. I'm actually in awe of the humility and the deep compassion that you bring to all your interactions with the students. Oh, yeah, Mary, I, you know, it's, it's not humility, really. It's, it's, it's me having to face the truth, you know. <laughs> the truth is I don't know all the answers. The students have wisdom in and of themselves. And I, once I recognize and respect that and honor that and accept that, then I have a room full of co-teachers. I have 25 to 30 co-teachers and 30 heads are wiser than one. So it's, it's not really humility. It's just accepting the actual fact. And of course, facing that fact is part of removing, you know, my own blinders, my own filters, my own presuppositions about what teaching is supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do and who's in charge. And that, that filter gets removed or gets chipped away at every time the students play because they reveal, you know, my own shortcomings. They, they reveal to me every time we play. And, you know, I have to bow in wisdom, in honor of the wisdom of, of all those assembled together. It's just a fact. It's just the way things reveal themselves to actually be. <laughs> well, I, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned, not only by educators, definitely by educators, but by parents in fact, by by anybody uh, interacting with anybody <laughs> in this world, uh. um, I, I remember in the book um, one of the parents was commenting on how their child, who had been an impossible uh, teenager, uh, <laughs> radically changed. Yeah. And I'm thinking that it's it's both top down and bottom up. You know, mm. just. Just as you are changing your attitude towards the children and making them grow, Mm -hmm. they are changing their attitudes about themselves and interacting differently in the world. Right. Well, I I almost hope it's kind of a a leveled playing field, really, in that, you know, the supposed expert, the teacher, is admitting to not being an expert, and the children are allowed to come into the space to attempt to become experts themselves. So we're really helping each other, and I go into every game, I'll be honest with you, with with some fear and trepidation, because this could be the time they don't save the world. This could be the time that they fail and cannot rise to the challenge. And, And I put myself in that position every time, and they realize we're all in that position together, and so this this uh, sink or 
swim kind of feeling comes up and they realize that the only way out, they don't realize at the beginning, but soon they discover the only way out to succeed is by depending on and helping each other. So they develop or discover collaboration. I don't have to teach it or to preach it. It's something that they uncover in the process of survival, really. So in a way, I'm, I'm the guide on the side, you might say. So they're, they're coming from their own empty space because there's no preparation given for this game whatsoever. There's no vocabulary, no history, no nothing. We go in cold, and that, and that is part of the process to go in with emptiness, to go in with an open mind completely, with no presets or suppositions. And from that ground of being, that empty space... We then can assemble something brand new rather than trying to build on, you know, past conventions. Uh, early on in the game, my students were dealing with real world countries. I had real world countries in the game and they stopped being able to solve the problems and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized using the real world countries, they were simply listening to the news and listening to their parents and following adult conventions and solutions that weren't working. And they were trying them. And so I had to strip away the real world countries and fictionalize them all so they could have the space to create their own understanding. We still use real world template uh, crises, Mm -hmm. but the country, the countries are left to, to their own imaginations to develop. And that seemed to open a lot of space for them to create solutions. Mm. You, you <laughs> first day orientation, <laughs> you throw 50 different crises at them. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a 13-page crisis document. Yeah. <laughs> how do they react to that? Oh, well, it's wonderful because it is literally too much information. It's overwhelming. And, and you know, the, the left brain, the analytical brain, according to some scientists, uh, we use to try and, and parse that kind of information. It shuts down. There's no way they can handle that much information. 13 pages of crises that take an hour, an hour and a half to three hours to go over with questions, a 25-page dossier full of templates and treaty agreements and blank uh, inventory sheets and so forth they have to understand and apprehend. It's simply too much. And so that part of the brain that tries to handle, tries to use past understanding and habits and conventions to manage this just doesn't work. And from that, we're thrown into despair. <laughs> and that's intended, that we go to failure. We go to the empty space where we're not able to understand and see what is really going on. And again, from that empty place of not knowing, we're able to maybe, I think, come to see more clearly what might be possible rather than looking through you know, our, our traditional or conventional filters that we have. And so from that despairing state, our relationship it keeps us afloat. It, it buoys us and makes us uh, stay alive until we can start trying to solve problems together. The children know there's a way out. They know I have confidence in them. They know this can be done, but they have no idea how, and it doesn't look possible. So from that point, you know, with the crisis overwhelming them, they struggle up to the light of understanding and develop collaboration and eventually start solving a few problems. <clears throat> And once they begin to solve problems, they reach a stage where they, they feel the need for each other and they go into, I call it hyper-collaborative uh, thinking. They start to depend on each other more deeply and intuitively, and that speeds up. And I, I, I refer in the book to sort of a click that they have as an individual or as a class where they suddenly come to understand this is an equation that we can solve together, but not separately. And we need each other. And then at that point, they begin to solve problems like you wouldn't believe so quickly, reasonably and practically in a, in a beautiful way. And they enter this sort of flow state that the author Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote a book called Flow, I believe, 
uh, a couple of decades ago about entering a state of ecstatic oneness with your problem situation where time seems to slow down or speed up and you feel like you're master of your domain. And the children enter that or encounter that every time and it's a miraculous thing to see, just miraculous. And they solve the world's problems and bring up compassion as the, the end point or as the ultimate results of what they do without me having to say a word about it. Well, I, I want to emphasize that one of the parameters of the game uh, that you set out at the outset is that not only must there be world peace, but each of the countries involved has to be better off than it was before. That's right. Everyone has to win. We have to solve all 50 interlocking problems with new problems that come up every time they, they take a card from the random card stack. There may be problems or good things happening, just as there are in life. And they have to deal with those new problems as well as solving the 50 original ones. And then every country's asset value must be improved, even if only by one dollar or one euro or one yen or whatever unit we're using. And that way we all must win. And I think that that mirrors a kind of ideal of, of interdependency. Actually, it mirrors the reality of, of uh, nature of interdependency. And it sort of tries to reveal that aspect of, of existence to the students without, again, preaching or teaching, that we all are related and everything seems to be connected. And once we understand that, you know, we cannot deal with one problem in isolation. Everything is connected and consequences are connected to other consequences. And, of course, they don't see that at the beginning, but only through living through it experientially do they come to understand that everything seems to be related and consequences yield more consequences. And we have to take a very comprehensive view, even to small problems. You gave some wonderful illustrations from of, of really, real growth within your mm-hmm. kids. Um, give us a few examples of some of your favorite Oh, surely, yes. Uh, In the book, I believe, there's an example. Uh, We're talking about the story of a bully, actually, which is quite a a, um, a debated subject these days, particularly. We had a bully in our school. There's no question about it. The child was known far and wide and, unfortunately, was very sophisticated in, in his victimization so that he never really was caught. And yet we all knew. And so this child came into my class to play the world peace game. And as a teacher, you have great power, and you have to be very careful with it, how you use it, knowing your students and knowing or trying to understand what they really need. In my case, I thought this particular child, because he's a bully and doesn't seem to see the interconnectedness uh, of himself with others, perhaps giving him a chance to have responsibility for others might change him, <laughs> you know, naively, I thought. So I offered him the position of prime minister, very counterintuitive, to put a person like that in the position of power over others, thinking that he would perhaps take a different tact and see things in a different way. Well, it appears I was wrong, as I often am in the game. He began to bully, and in his formal capacity in, in the world peace game of power and, and diplomacy, began to take over country after country with military might and di- diplomatic tricks and so forth. I was brokenhearted. I was disheartened. It just was ruining my game. My game is being destroyed by this bully. I've made a bad decision, and I'm going to scar these children for life with this awful decision I've made. Well, this is where you understand as a teacher or as a human being, you have limited understanding about the appearance of things, that life is much too vast to really know and understand everything completely. 
So at one point, near the end of the game, this bully had taken over. His name was Jared. Jared had taken over every country but one. He absorbed all other countries' cabinets into his country's cabinet. He had about 15 or 20 people on his team behind him. And he was preparing to send his tank battalion and his air force and his infantry into the last country to take it over and, and basically win or destroy the world peace game. It wasn't going to be a peaceful end. And there was nothing I could do about it. It's their game. The students run it. I'm not allowed by my own rules to interfere with their understanding and their learning in that process. But suddenly, as he was about to launch his last attack, a student stood up on his team and raised her hand. She wanted to declare a coup d'etat. <laughs> now, now, they can do that at any time for good reason. There has to be a good reason for doing so. And we all understood the reason. And the coup d'etat is usually carried out with a series of coin toss by the weather goddess. And the coin toss outcome is weighted in favor of the, the larger power. Jared won the coin toss. And that poor little girl who's so brave just packed up her lunch and picked up her little sweater and made her way over to the last country to seek asylum. And that was all she could do. And the room sank in even deeper gloom. Again, nothing I can do. My heart breaks even more. Jared, uh, perturbed now, but determined to carry out his attack, proceeds to send his tanks in. And suddenly, another little girl stands up on his team. I want to have a coup d'etat. Jared is beside himself. Nobody ever challenges him. He is never, never challenged by anyone in our school. He always wins. The coup fails again, and this little girl has to go seek asylum. Jared turns to continue his attack, and somebody else, Benjamin, raises his hand. He wants to have a coup d'etat attempt. Jared is undone, and that coup fails also, though. But after six attempts, the coup finally does succeed, and the, Jared has to then seek asylum humbly from the last country he was about to attack. And they graciously, I have to give them credit, gave him a position in working out a peace treaty with his former country so that no longer would there be hostilities. Now, I didn't find out until years later that these students had, had discovered, uncovered, had created and innovated a way to deal with Jared in the formal setting of the game. They had decided to the last person to stand up one behind the other. If you go down, then she stands up. If she goes down, then he stands up. And they had decided that to the last person, 15 or 16 of them, they were going to continue sacrificing themselves in the relevancy of the game until this tyrant was removed. And it was a humbling lesson for me and for Jared, I, Jared, Jared too, I think. But, you know, I could never have devised that kind of curriculum learning. I could never have come up with that kind of lesson plan with that deep of an understanding or outcome in it. But the children could. Their collective wisdom is greater than mine. And they were able to come up with a way to once again save the world and teach us all something. So these kinds of unexpected things that happen by allowing the students the room to create and allowing them the freedom to to fail is what I think uh, is a great premise, a great setup for a deeper learning than even a teacher can design. Mm -hmm. Another story I just loved, I, I have to tell you, is the one about Pablo. <laughs> oh, Pablo, my friend, Pablo. Great, 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 great example of a teacher seeing only superficially. You know, we see our students and we see them at different levels as time goes on, but there's always something deeper. And we have to really work on ourselves to remove our own blinders, our own filters, our own prejudices and baggage and biases so that we can really allow the students their full range of learning and we're not hindering them by our own, you know, presuppositions. 
Pablo was a little guy in the fifth grade. He was about as wide as he was tall. <laughs> he was very round and very uh, roly-poly, and his hair stuck up, and he had very thick glasses, and kind of a kind of I guess you'd say a nerd in, in some uh, parlance you might say today. Well, Pablo also had the the uh, habit of talking very very slowly, so slowly in fact that teachers were were um, I guess. Uh, not loath to call on him, but they tried to work around Pablo sometimes because his comments and questions and ideas would take so long to get out. And so whenever his hand went up in class, the other students would simply put their heads down on the desk and wait until it was over. <laughs> For some reason, perversely, and myself, I thought, Pablo has a spark of leadership in him. I'm going to offer him the prime ministership of a country. So as soon as I offered it to him in the class setting, I saw all the other students look at me and then look at Pablo in shock. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you could hear them thinking, Mr. Hunter, what have you done? This is going to be the longest game in history. You know? And it just something told me I had to take that risk. Well, it turns out it appears that I was wrong. Pablo didn't seem to rise to the challenge. He proceeded as slowly as ever. And usually in the beginning of the game, we, we take turns. Each country has a turn declaring its movements on the board. Then we go into general negotiation session. Everyone can talk and negotiate in secret or in public. Then we have the next country take its turn. And we go round and round the game board like that. And that's one game day. Well, the first game day, Pablo's country's turn came. And he stood up with our formal declaration. I am Pablo Rodriguez, very slowly. And I speak on behalf of the people of. And he went on. And these are my declarations. It took forever. And he stepped to the board. Now, usually prime ministers make two or three moves at the beginning. They're still bewildered, but they can muster or manage a couple of things to get themselves out of immediate danger. Pablo makes one move and then sits slowly back down. And I see that his teammates just dropping their heads into their hands. <laughs> oh, moaning almost uh, silently. And you can see them just sort of quivering with, with uh, the fear of just being in this forever. And this went on for five or six weeks. And my heart again is breaking because I put poor Pablo in this situation and students are working around him. They're working through him. They're trying to just cut Pablo out of the loop because he's not seeming to help them. And then suddenly one day, about six weeks in, I looked to Pablo as his turn came around. And I see his hands trembling just a little bit. I see his eyes get kind of wide and, and I suddenly realize I know what's, I know what's happening. I know what's about to happen. I know what's going to come. I've seen it happen a few times over the past three decades. Pablo stands up a little bit more quickly than usual. He seems to move a little bit more quickly to the board. And he even seems to speak more, more rapidly. He says, I'm Pablo Rodriguez, and I speak on behalf of the people of my country, and these are my declarations. And Pablo steps to the board. And I think he makes about 22 moves in about two or three minutes. He's got hands on every level, outer space, aircraft, ground and sea, and down at his shoelaces at the undersea level. He directs his minister of defense to move some troops. He turns to his CFO and asks him to cut a check for the World Bank. He talks to his secretary of state, turns behind and says, please get a deal signed with that country or the trade agreement we had. And he sits back down. He steps away from the board in shock. He's in shock. He can't believe what he's just done. We're all in shock. And the class is completely silent because nobody's ever seen Pablo move that fast or so comprehensively. And I'm beside myself. I jump up and I say, Pablo, you see, you really see. And he turns slowly to me and he says, 
Mr. Hunter, I see everything. <laughs> I said, Pablo, you really understand. You see the whole thing. Mr. Hunter, I understand everything. And it's a magical moment. We all laugh. But in that moment, Pablo actually does. He gets the entire equation of the game all at once. Much, I guess, the same way I sort of got the equation when I conceived of the board. He can see all of the vectors and trend lines moving all at once, and he can understand how to manage the entire affair. And he does so gracefully and beautifully, and it just blows my mind, and everybody in the room is electrified. And from that point on, problems are solved left and right by students all together in groups, excitement through the roof, because he's liberated us to go into that flow state of understanding. He was the click, the catalyst that brought us to another level. And I never suspected. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling he might, but I never really thought he'd be able to do it. I was limiting you know, the possibility, but Pablo proved me wrong. Mm-hmm. It was so, uh, I have to say, I teared up a little bit. Um, <laughs> at Now, at the start of every game, you quote Sun Tzu's The Art of War to your students. It's it's interesting because I interviewed Paul Chappelle a few Mm. weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with his book? I don't think so. Can you tell me about that? It's um, The the Art of Peace, The Art of Waging Peace. Oh, yes. Okay, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he also quotes Sun Tzu. Right. Tell us why is the art of war so relevant to a game of peace? Well, you know, the the art of war was introduced to the game by a student, actually. I didn't think of that. A student came in and said, you know, Mr. Hunter, this really cool little book, he had a very small pocket version of it. My mom reads it every night. She's a businesswoman. She uses it in her business. She says, it's really cool. Can we use it in the world peace game? So I quickly thumbed through it. I'd heard of it before, but I hadn't seen that version. And so we brought it to the group and discussed it, the class discussed and decided we'd like to have it in, maybe just a little bit from it every session we start. So we instituted that some years ago. And as I've understood it, the art of war by Sun Tzu, the Chinese general from 2,500 years ago, is really more about how to avoid war or how to get out of it quickly with the least amount of damage and suffering to the population. And so the students took to it eagerly because they, they saw it as a guide to helping them get out of trouble and danger, not as a manual on how to create destruction. <laughs> so, so they use it. But the beautiful thing is, Miriam, they recontextualize Sun Tzu's writings in their own light, their own understanding. In the film World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements, a documentary film by a wonderful uh, local documentarian here in Charlottesville, Chris Farina, this film he made in 2006 and released in 2010, uh, shows David. David is a prime minister of one of the countries, and he's been caught in a cycle of violence. He's been attacking mercenaries uh, from the saboteur, secretly moved by the saboteur, whom no one knows uh, the identity of. And David's frustrated because nobody's dealing with them, and they're attacking here, attacking there, and he gets tired of it. He says, I'm going to deal with it. So he goes to attack them and he wins. He's winning battle after battle. Every time this, the mercenaries, the saboteurs, mercenaries pops up, David is right there with troops. But he suddenly has an understanding, a very deep understanding, that he's winning, but he's still caught in a cycle of violence. And he quotes Sun Tzu in the film. And I was so impressed. And I went to look up that quote afterwards after I saw the film clip. And I realized 
Sun Tzu never said what, what David indicated. David indicated that uh, Sun Tzu was saying, you know, you go into battle and win. You want to go back and win. You go into battle and lose. You want to keep on fighting because you want to win. But Sun Tzu never said that. David had recontextualized Sun Tzu in a way that he understood it to help his understanding come to a different level. And it was beautiful. He just saw himself stuck in the cycle of violence, not that winning was good and losing was bad. And so I had to understand that as a teacher, I could never have come up with a, a lesson that, that, derived, that brought about that depth of understanding in my students. They had to make meaning of it themselves by putting themselves in those positions. And it was beyond, beyond a right and wrong kind of assessment. David understood the larger, larger almost meta uh, understanding of, of what he was in. And I think that kind of learning is so deep and rewarding, and I'm so glad that Sun Tzu and I are partners in that in a way that he helps my students and helps me too every game session. Now, I believe that you teach in a school or at least in a class for gifted children. Uh, that has been my career for the most part uh, up until lately. Now I'm an interdisciplinary learning specialist is what they call me, which pretty, mean, pretty much means anything can happen in my room. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the gifted program's definition has changed over the decades. It used to be you'd take a task and, uh, test, and if you passed it, you were gifted, and if you didn't, you wouldn't and would never be, and that was the end of the story. And so we, we lost a lot of Einsteins. We lost a lot of Martin Luther Kings, a lot of Gandhis, because, you know, some, some people don't test well in a snapshot mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the definition is broadened through work like uh, Joseph Renzulli at the University of Connecticut and Dr. Carol Tomlinson at the uh, University of Virginia, for example, who talk about the definition of giftedness now as being considered behaviors we consider gifted that might appear in anyone uh, under any circumstance at any time. So therefore, we've got to allow these gifted methods and te techniques and methodologies to be accessed, accessed by any student. And so nowadays, if I'm working with gifted students, technically, the program allows that I may see 30 to 40 percent of the students in the entire building over their four or five year career in elementary school. And that's a much broader, more wonderful approach, I think. And so that allows students in, the, in Chris Farim's documentary, we have gifted students identified and some who are not identified. And frankly, I can't remember which is which anymore because they all rise to a level that's completely out of the box. And that's where we want everyone to be able to go, no matter their labeling or where they come from. In an educational system where things tend to be measured by test results and mm. kind of instant responses, mm. did you have difficulty getting something as um, amorphous uh, <laughs> as this word. game accepted? Well, you know, I, I never really tried, honestly, to do that. I guess you might have said I was sort of a, like my parents, a sort of a quiet renegade working in the shadows. Uh, the gifted program allowed me to sort of have cover in a way that, you know, I could be out of the, bo out of the box and it was con considered legal. It was all right to do so. Uh, moving into mainstream, of course, I did get challenges from administrators who would say, you know, Mr. Hunter, we cannot get quantifiable data out of this game. I know it's interdisciplinary. I know the learning is deep. I know it's off the charts, but we cannot get data. Please put this game away. Mm. And, you know, I've resigned from my teaching career in different schools, I think four or five times in my career and moved to a different school. Sometimes 
that was uh, seemingly the only way out or the only way to do what I thought was right and not do what I thought was wrong. Nothing's wrong with testing per se. I mean, we have to assess and understand where children are and what their needs are. But when I think that emphasis takes predominance, you know, we can certainly lose sight of the real essence of teaching and real essence of learning. You know, my good friend Jay McTie, who's an educational consultant, talks about testing and assessment being a test being a, a snapshot of assessment. But we really want a, a broad portfolio. We want a whole photo album, not just a snapshot that determines our fate. And so I really subscribe to that view that we have to have a large, long-range view. And now I really believe assessment is over decades. Assessment is 30, 40 years long. That We find out the results of our work when students come back to us as adults 30 years later and let us know what kind of people they've become, what kind of person they are. Are they compassionate? Are they loving? Do they care? Can they solve problems that help others? And they're not just intellectual giants with very t small hearts, but they're full and complete, rich human beings in, in that very deep way of, of being human. So I, I think assessment is much broader and deeper than I ever thought it was. And fortunately, through social media and because of the Chris's film and now the book, students are coming back from 10, 20, 30 years ago and telling me exactly, specifically, what effect this game has. You know, that's so affirming for a teacher because it's very bittersweet when they leave you you may never see them again. You know, mm -hmm. they leave you at the top of the grade of your school and they go off and, and you lay awake at nights years later wondering whatever happened to this child or that child. You may never find out. But fortunately, I've, I've been able to find out about some and they tell me, Mr. Hunter, this game had this effect on my life. And there's even a letter or two on our blog on the website, uh, worldpeacegame.org, where students write back and say, I'm in diplomacy and international security issues now, and I tingle every time I deal with diplomatic problems. And my professors say, how can you possibly solve these problems so well? No one else can. And the child, the girl, the young woman now turns to the professor and says, well, I've been dealing with diplomacy since I was nine years old. <laughs> of course I can. <laughs> so that's very affirming to hear, I have to say. You you actually are now giving lectures on your your pedagogical approach. How in what context and how are they being received? Yeah, that's that's a wonderful development. Um, Chris Farina and I were, were invited to share the film when it came out in 2010. It came out in, at South by Southwest uh, Festival in Austin, Texas, well received. Immediately taken to Bergen, Norway, where the film out of 145 international films won the first prize audience award. Chris was shocked. We were stunned. And since then, we've been on this roller coaster, wild ride all across, all around the world, really, sharing the film. But uh, usually at, at the expense of someone who wanted to see it at a festival. And at some point, festival season, season being over, having run its course, we were out of funding. You know, we were a couple of small town guys. We couldn't sustain this. And a woman named Jamie Baker in Memphis, Tennessee, happened to see the trailer for the film. And she saw the TED Talk that uh, the film led to uh, in 2011 in Long Beach, California. And she immediately understood. She got it. And she, being involved with the Martin Institute for Teaching Excellence in Memphis, uh, developed a partnership offer for Chris and I both. And with that partnership now, the World Peace Game Foundation and, my, and uh, the Memphis uh, the Martin Institute, we've been able to sustain the idea of sharing the World Peace Games message 
And really, we, we say the game is not about the game. It's about the deeper principles and broader teachings inherent in this kind of attitude and approach to teaching that we're trying to share. And again, not just about the game. We hold master classes now around the world. Jamie Baker and I go out and we do sort of a one-two punch, kind of an Abbott and Costello, and we bring teachers in with the World Peace Game. But we discover that the World Peace Game really is a Trojan horse. That it seem our workshops, our master classes seem to be about the game. But when we open up that process and look inside the game, the teachers really seem to see a mirror. And they see a reflection of their own practice at a very deep level. And so we turn the second half of the master class around and begin to leave the World Peace Game behind and help to excavate and develop the best possible curriculum each of those teachers who've come from around the world to this, this class have within them. So they leave our master class with something that they own, they develop, they've created and vetted with other master teachers in the room. And it's hopefully the greatest, deepest, best curriculum they've ever seen in their lives. And that's really the effect of the game, that it's, it's not about us or the game. It's about who you are and what you're trying to do and empowering you to do the best and be the best teacher you can possibly be. So with that kind of um, support, you know, I, I do lectures here and there. and We'll talk to anybody. If they'll stand still long enough, basically. <laughs> but okay. as you said, we've been so- screened at the... Where do people where do people go to find out more and how to contact you and all that? Oh yeah, thank you, Miriam. That would be at uh, uh, WorldPeaceGame.org, our website that uh, the Martin Institute has constructed for us. Uh, and of course, the emails come through there as well. And many people from many different countries now are saying, "Can you come here and do a master class? Can can we come there?" So Jamie and I are hopscotching across the U.S. this summer. Five master classes in various cities. I think Nashville. Uh, we were in Memphis, uh, Denver. We're going to be in Richmond, Virginia, and then I think in um, oh gosh, where are we going to be? Now, <laughs> there's so many I can't even really keep keep up with them all. But it's a wonderful thing that we're able to go and do that. And again, I think we we leave not so much necessarily uh, having. Uh, replicated or spread the world peace game, but having inspired other teachers to be what they can be in the best way. Which is exactly what you do with your children. We hope so. We hope that they leave, you know, not needing us anymore. We hope that they leave with something that they can use from here on. You know, that's the difficult thing for teachers today. We, we've got to educate students for something we can't imagine, for a time we can't see, for a time I won't live to see. I've got, I've got to prepare them to deal with that in the best way. How can we do that? You know, we teachers now are not maybe some of us going to be around when those things come about. So how can we prepare students for something we cannot even conceive of? We have to figure out a way to develop their hearts, their relationships, and some kind of conceptual, intellectual, or heart-based toolkit, tool set that they can use in any situation, you know, forever. Universal tools. Because we cannot and we will not be here to see what they have to deal with. We've left them a lot of problems. We haven't solved them. So how do we help them do what we couldn't do? I mean, we have to think beyond content and information. Those things won't save us. You know, it's going to be a heart-based approach. Compassion is my World Peace Game players show me every time we play. We have to depend on a deeper and greater and broader compassion. Well, before we go, you have to tell us about how you took your class to the Pentagon and told them about the World Peace Game. I love that story. Yes. 
It was a most amazing experience, Miriam. Amazing. I mean, you can imagine I'm a small town school teacher just doing what I do, what we all do. And suddenly I'm finding myself in that realm. It all started when Chris and I were showing the, the film. We were screening his film at the invitation of a firm called IDEO in Silicon Valley. They're the, the premier design firm on the planet, you might say. And they saw the film and the World Peace game as design thinking. That's what they call it. That's, that's what they do. And Chris and I looked at each other and said, oh, yes, design thinking. We, we certainly think we were doing that. <laughs> we were happy to share that, that idea. And uh, we were screening the film, and at the very end of the film, in their huge auditorium at their company campus in Silicon Valley, this very well-dressed, well-appointed, well-put-together young woman with beautiful hair, great shoes, lovely jewelry, came up and offered me her card. She said, Mr. Hunter, we'd like to see you. And I looked at the card, and it said, Defense Department, Pentagon. And I said, well, I guess we'll have to find some time in our schedule to come and see you then, won't we? So sure enough, Chris and I, two small-town guys, got in his 20-year-old Toyota Corolla and drove to Arlington, Virginia, went through all that security and went inside the Pentagon at their invitation. And we discovered, much to our surprise, that this 56-minute documentary had been screened at the Pentagon for policy and military people four times before we even knew anything about it. <clears throat> they screened it a fifth time with us in attendance, and proceeded to have the most moving, astounding discussion with Chris and I about creating empty space around problems to be able to better problem solve. They saw that in the film and they said, you know, John, we've been at war for 10 years now. You know, we're suffering. Our hearts are hurting. We've lost people. And it, we're looking for solutions anywhere we can find them. It almost seemed to be sort of a peace wing in the Pentagon, strangely <laughs> enough. You know, we went thinking we're going to see this monolithic, you know, faceless, heartless war machine. And inside we find people who are hurting, who are suffering, who are struggling, just as people outside were doing, trying to get through these difficult times. And so we were so moved and so impressed. We had this wonderful discussion. We went back home. And a week or two later, I got a phone call, again from the Pentagon, Mr. Hunter, We'd like to know if you could bring your students who play the World Peace game to the Pentagon. We'd like to talk to them, too. <laughs> well, <laughs> after I got up off the floor, you know, I proceeded to say yes. And so I got my students ready. So what did we do? We got dressed up. You know, we got dressed to the nines. And I prepared my students. We have fictional countries in the game because that allows our creativity more freedom. But I asked them to study real-world countries to prepare for this Pentagon visit. The Pentagon was going to offer us a mock press briefing in the Pentagon press briefing room. They're going through the motions of the real thing with the actual Pentagon press secretary. So my students, I put them on the Mexico desk, the Pakistan desk, the Nigeria desk, you know, the Norwegian desk, whatever, and they had to study military, economic, and social issues, develop a one-page white paper, and develop questions to ask at the briefing. They were ready. They practiced. Nine years old. <clears throat> so we go to the Pentagon in our finest clothing. Our principal goes, Michelle Kastner, our superintendent, cutting-edge superintendent, Pam Moran, goes along with us. We go in, and we're ushered into this huge conference room, and there in the conference room in the morning are two, three, and four-star generals from every branch of the service. And you know what, Miriam? It wasn't a photo op. This was a serious <laughs> conference and a meeting. This was a peer-to-peer -peer consultation. These generals asked my students important, serious, tactical, and strategic questions, and they listened to the answers. They said, we handle insurgents in the field like this. How do you handle them? 
And my students answered. They said, climate change affects our supply chain in the field like this. You know, the shipping lanes are opening up because the ice is melting. How do you handle that? And my students could answer because they had lived through it in our World Peace Game simulation. A peer-to-peer discussion taken very seriously and given very respectfully by these senior officers, many of whom had been in the worst possible situations in combat you could see. So we were honored. We were so moved. My children, being children, giggled and delighted and squirmed and enjoyed and answered as, as delightfully as they, they wanted to. In the press, press briefing, in the press briefing room, my children, I'm proud to say, stumped the press secretary twice with two other questions. He said, I've got to refer to the State Department on that one, and that one I simply cannot answer. I'm sorry. So we had a great time. And then after the tour and lunch, we were ushered into a room. We didn't know what, what was going on, but suddenly a, a door opened and an aide stepped out and said, in this, in this way, please. And our entire group went into the office of then Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. There he was, the great man himself, with his suit, coat, and tie on, warm and affable and beaming like your grandfather, you know, one of the most powerful military figures in the world. And here we are in his office, and he's treating us like we're long-lost relatives. He says, i got ten minutes to talk to you, and let's talk. But then he takes off his coat, and he stays almost a half an hour talking with my nine-year-olds about policy. How do you handle this? What's your most difficult problem? Here's our most difficult problem. What do you do about it? Here's what we do. A policy discussion with the Secretary of Defense, considered seriously. And, you know, his desk is uh, General John Blackjack Pershing's desk, so the students were allowed to go and touch the desk, and there was a stone from bin Laden's compound on his desk. The students were allowed to run their hands over that, and they just were allowed to free, free access in his office. It was just such a gracious and generous gesture. And, you know, he had a number of phones along the back wall, and he says, yeah, students can look over there, but just don't touch that red one. Leave that red one alone. Don't touch that But it was a miraculous thing. And at the end, he did something that was just even more astounding. You know, in the military, there's a tradition called coining, where a coin, a metal coin, is struck in in the name of a commander or a unit or a division. And that coin is given by a commander to a subordinate for outstanding, a superior action, a behavior uh, in service of duty, above and beyond the call. And one of the aides to Secretary of Defense Panetta said, you know, I've rarely ever seen him give that out to anybody. Mm-hmm. But that day, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Panetta, gave a coin and a ritual handshake to each of my students with his insignia and his name on his, of his office on it. An outstanding thing. And we were just so astounded. We stepped out of his office there in the hall. Who should we meet? But Mr. Hunter? Yes, sir. Is this, is this the World Peace Game delegation? Yes, it is. Well, I'm General Martin Dempsey, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I want to coin you, too. Oh, my goodness. Sure enough, he did, and we have those coins today. I'm happy to show them to anybody. But what a, what a miraculous and amazing thing. Of course, after that, we're invited back again, you know, to, to perhaps even play the game inside. So it's been, a, it's been an amazing, astounding thing that some of the most powerful people in the world, you know, the greatest military machine in history, is, is turning or would turn to consider what uh, wisdom young people might have about how to deal with problems that have been with us since, since we began. You know, I, I give them a lot of credit for even considering and seriously considering answers from any and everywhere. So that was our experience, and it was a, a moving, life-changing thing. Well, I don't know what gives me more cause for hope, the fact that the, the staff at the Pentagon were open 
to mm. inviting you or mm. the fact that there are generations of students who have gone through your tutelage who are <laughs> out there in the world and are going to be leading us forward. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, we have no more time, but it has been (laughs) such a delight to have you with us, John. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been my extreme pleasure, Mary. Thank you so much for the opportunity, really. Thank you. This has been John Hunter, the author of World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. Uh, His website is worldpeacegame.org. Next week, our guest is the Indian mystic Rashmi Hinnani talking about her book, Shiva Speaks, Conversations with Maha Avatar Babaji. And now our track of the week, Leave a Little Love Behind by Michael Wachman. Sometimes we all need a helping hand Break the fall and help us gently land It's amazing what a little bit of care can do And it's good for me and it's good for you Behind by Michael James Wackner, a producer, songwriter, and musician from Minneapolis, Minnesota. His website is songsbymichael.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show as much as I did. Check out John Hunter's book and film and lots more on ncreview.com. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>